Would you just bow with me in a word of prayer as we ask God to bless our time? Father, we do thank you for how you use your word in our lives, how it changes us, how it shapes us into the likeness of your dear son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we are grateful that we um, are even able to learn, learn of you and learn what is true and right and what will help us in this life and the life to come. Lord, for we know that without you, we are nothing. We know that we are so dependent upon you for everything. Even if we don't acknowledge you by faith, all humanity is dependent upon you, even though they reject you. And so we're grateful as Christians that you, having drawn us to yourself, have given us all we need for life and godliness, and that we can do all that you have asked us by the power of your Spirit as we submit ourselves to your Word. So tonight, as we look again at your Word, may it penetrate our hearts and our minds. May it be impactful to our lives as we submit ourselves to it. May it encourage us, challenge us, shape us, mold us into the image of your Son for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's take our Bibles tonight and turn in them to our study of Paul's Paul's letter to the Galatians. This has been, at least for me, I trust it has been for you as well, a wonderful study concerning the veracity of the gospel. Of course, you know as well as I do, the gospel is under attack at every level in our society today. And we know that only the true gospel saves There is no other gospel that will save. Every other gospel that sells itself as the saving gospel is a lie. If it is not the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ alone, then it is, in fact, a false gospel. That is simply to say that if being justified before God can be attained any other way than through faith in Jesus Christ alone, then the gospel that we preach and the gospel that we say that we have believed is a false gospel, and therefore we are to be damned. We are still on a road to hell, even though we have intellectually convinced ourselves we will be okay before God. Well, when it came to the gospel, the Apostle Paul was facing a whole lot of opposition, It seemed that everywhere the Apostle Paul went, there were others who spoke in opposition to the gospel that he preached, gospel that he had known. Uh, He had been through the region of Galatia on previous missionary journeys. He had preached to them the gospel of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone, and soon after he was off the scene, others had come in to say, that if you were to be considered a true Christian, then you needed Jesus plus circumcision. You needed Jesus plus some other religious ritual. And as we saw last Lord's Day, Paul adamantly and was shocked by the fact that some were buying off on this conclusion. He adamantly was opposed to that kind of conclusion. In fact, he said that even if an angelic being of some kind preached 
something contrary to what he had already preached, or if he himself came back and preached something contrary to what he had already preached, then he was to be considered divinely condemned, anathema, under the wrath and condemnation of God. In other words, he was to be placed in the false gospel group. He was to be placed in the group by which no one could ever be saved. And so you remember, Paul said in verse 10, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? Because if I were striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He's giving the juxtaposition of those who wanted to sell a gospel that was a works gospel, a Jesus plus gospel with the gospel that he was preaching in by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And if you were serving the one that pleased men and allowed men to love you for the sake of the gospel you told them because it pleased them, then you were not definitely a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, why would he need to say that to the Galatian people? Because that's what the accusation was saying about him. That he said that he simply wanted people to to believe him in order that they might follow him, for he was a man pleaser. That's what they were saying. Don't listen to the Apostle Paul. All he wants is you to follow him. All he is is a man pleaser. And so Paul needs to address this issue. Why? Because the very thing that Paul is being accused of is, in fact, the very thing that they are promoting in Galatia. The very thing that the false teachers have come in to promote. And the Galatians are teetering on this edge of becoming man-pleasers. They're teetering on the edge of believing it and entering this group of man-pleaser kinds like the false teachers who were accusing Paul of that very thing. In fact, the Apostle Paul continues to highlight this issue throughout this entire letter. Notice in chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, he says, But we did not yield subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. He was talking about going to the Jerusalem council. He said, listen, we didn't say anything to them in order that we might be accepted by them. We weren't trying to be man pleasers. Over in verse 11 of chapter 2, when Cephas even came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined in his hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of everybody, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? You see, he's saying, listen, I wasn't there to just get in the group and be part of the group for the sake of being part of the group. I even challenged Cephas to his very face in front of everybody because he was hypocritically using the gospel for his own good. 
over in chapter 4, verse 16, Have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out in order that they may seek, that you may seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. Paul's saying, listen, I'm not telling you these things because I want you to just accept me because I'm Paul. It's all about the truth. Over in chapter 6, Verse 12, he goes on and continues this right to the very end of the gospel. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So Paul is over and over dealing with this very subject all throughout this letter to the Galatians because this is the very thing they were accusing him of. So Paul is defending his gospel By how? By pointing to his own life. He says, listen, I didn't do this for my sake. This wasn't about me. He's pointing to his own life. Why? This is a very important point. Why? Because he knows that the gospel he preaches is intimately linked with the life that preaches it. Now, we say that all the time when it comes to the gospel, right? Someone says, well, I believe in Jesus Christ. And we go, really? You don't live like a Christian. They say they believe in Jesus, but their life shows so different. We hear so much today about lifestyle evangelism. Just live for Jesus as lifestyle evangelism. Well, that's good. We ought to live like Christ lived in lifestyle kind of evangelism, if you will. But lifestyle evangelism means nothing without the word being preached. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Paul knows that his life intimately is linked with his preaching. So if He's the one giving the message, and it's not authentic. Then the message that he's preaching can't be trusted. And so Paul points to himself in order to authenticate the true gospel from the false gospel. So if you're there now in Galatians chapter 1, I want you to follow along as I read from verse 11 all the way to the end of the chapter. We have to take this in one chunk. I know it's a large chunk to be taking in in such a small book, but we have to take it because like this morning, it, it flows together and we can't separate this out. Paul says in verse 11, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach among him among the Gentiles. I didn't immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. 
And then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I didn't see any other of the apostles except James, the brother, the Lord's brother. Now in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I'm not lying. And then I went into the region of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing He who once persecuted us now is preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. How is the Apostle Paul going to prove to the Galatian believers who are now wavering in their faith and being tempted to desert the one who's called them, as Paul said in verse 6 and following? How how is he going to prove to them the gospel that he preaches is the only true gospel? How's he going to prove it? He's going to prove it through his testimony. He's going to prove it through his testimony. I find that refreshing. I find that refreshing because far too often within Christendom, I see and hear believers trying to search for all kinds of clever ways, all kinds of techniques and, and, and little uh, ways in which we adjust things to prove that faith in Jesus Christ is the right way. We think sometimes to ourselves, I can just prove this to somebody, then they will know that it's true. We look for all kinds of arguments to use against false religions. We try all kinds of what we might consider ironclad proofs that faith in Jesus Christ is the way. And what is refreshing to me, even as a pastor and having been a Christian for several decades, is that Paul doesn't do any of that. The apostle Paul does is point to himself as proof. Paul says, I'm proof that the gospel is true, the gospel I preach. That's why I've entitled this message, True Conversion, Proof of the True Gospel. True Conversion, Proof of the True Gospel. Notice how Paul begins. He says in verse 11 and 12, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now remember, the Apostle Paul has maintained from the very beginning that there was only one true gospel. There isn't many gospels. There isn't many shades of the gospel. There is only one true gospel, and it was the one that he preached. Every other gospel was a false gospel. And now he needs to prove that. Now, because they're wondering and they're doubting and they've been had this false Uh, gospel of works brought in before them, now he's having to prove it. And he proves it only by drawing attention first to the source of the gospel. To the source of the gospel. He says, the source is not me. The source is not me. He denies three commonly touted sources for the truth. He clearly states one true source. He says, it was not according to man. That's what some people say. 
It was not received from man, as some people say, and I was not taught by man. So first, it was not according to man. That is simply to say it wasn't invented by men. The gospel that I teach isn't something that men came up with. Paul is pointing to Christ. Paul's gospel pointed directly at the Savior. It pointed to the grace shown to man by God through Jesus Christ. No man-made gospel would ever write a gospel like that. In fact, the gospel that the Galatians are currently hearing from those who had come in was not the gospel of grace in Christ alone, by faith alone. It was a gospel of salvation with credit that would go to men. That is exactly opposite of the gospel of Paul. Paul says, my gospel is not a gospel according to men. It's not a gospel according to men. It's a gospel that isn't of men. I didn't receive it from man. It wasn't according to man. And so he says, secondly, I didn't receive it from man. In other words, no human agency was involved in generating the gospel that I preach. It had not been passed down to Paul as one of the Jewish traditions. It wasn't one of the things that he had been given by someone who had gone before him. It wasn't the word of so-and-so who was the famous teacher before him. He didn't receive it that way. It comes exclusively from God. And so he says, thirdly, I wasn't taught by men. In other words, I didn't sit in some theological class and under some theological study on the doctrine of soteriology. I received it in a unique way. Paul says, notice, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Certainly the Galatians had received the gospel through Paul. Paul was the one who brought the gospel to them. In fact, that is how all of us heard the gospel. Someone came and told us the gospel. They preached the gospel to us, but that is not what Paul received. Paul was not taught the gospel that way. Paul says he was taught the gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That is unique. None of us receive the gospel that way. We don't receive revelation from God to us in a direct way that we might now go and teach it. We receive the gospel through the Word of God. And if we've never known the gospel, we usually receive the Word of God through someone who preaches the Word to us. So who is the one true source of the gospel? It is the Lord Himself. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Listen, Paul says, listen, I, 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 want, you, I want to prove to you the gospel, and I want to prove to you this first of all. It has nothing to do with me. The gospel has nothing to do with me. It wasn't generated in me. I didn't get it from somebody else, and I'm just passing on that information. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Paul says, I heard and I learned the gospel by direct revelation from the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Until Paul's Damascus Road conversion, that wasn't Paul's heart. Paul had believed that Jesus Christ was an imposter, that he wasn't who he said he was. 
But on that road, God opened his eyes to the truth. And at that very moment, Christ crashed into his heart like a thunderbolt, saving him and commissioning him to go and to preach to the Gentile. So Paul had received the true gospel from the Lord himself, and therefore all other gospels were to be rejected as false. Anything else that went against Jesus Christ and Him alone and faith in Him alone and no reliance on yourself or any kind of righteousness, any gospel that preached a reliance on yourself was a false gospel no matter how small the reliance was. And so that was false, Paul's first proof. The source of the gospel is not me. The source of salvation has nothing to do with me, Paul says. But what's the second proof? What's the second proof? This is the biggest part, part of his, his argument. The second proof is his own conversion. His own conversion. Notice what he says in verses 13 to 17. For I have you, for you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult flesh and blood. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I just went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Now this is fascinating to me as a Christian. I think it ought to be fascinating to any of us because we need to understand something here that I believe we don't give enough credit to. And that is this, our best defense. Maybe we could say it this way. One of our best defenses for the validity of the gospel is us. One of our best defenses for the validity and veracity of the gospel is us. And I think we need to just hear what the Apostle Paul is saying here, because he is defending the truthfulness of the gospel by describing the profound change the gospel had upon his life. In essence, Paul is saying, listen, you want proof of the gospel? Just look at me. Just look at me. And we need to hear that. You, you, you want to see proof of the gospel? Then just listen to my testimony. Listen to what God has done to me, a reprobate sinner. Listen, our changed life is proof of the true gospel. Our changed life is proof that belief in Jesus Christ changes lives. Oh, sure, we can come up with all kinds of clever arguments to try to prove the gospel that it does save. We can come up with all kinds of things and try to make someone believe because we have these clever arguments, but the reality is that we are the proof. We are the proof. Each one of us. Each one of us who knows Christ is proof that the gospel is true. This is why I always say, it's one thing to profess Jesus. It's one thing to say, I believe in Jesus. Or to say that you believe in God. 
There's a whole lot of people within evangelicalism that say that. I believe, I believe. But the reality I want us to know is, has their life changed? Say you believe, has your life been changed? Not simply on the outside, not simply by some kind of behavior modification on the outside where you change some circumstantial things in your life and things seem to change in your life. Not simply external change, but internal change, a heart change. To go from not wanting Christ at all to now preaching Christ as the only way. That's an internal change that is shown in an external way. And that was the situation with Paul when he came face to face with the gospel. In fact, if there ever was a person who you might have said, that person will never come to Christ, it would have been the Apostle Paul. We have people in our lives, right? We have the hard cases where maybe we've been praying for them for a long time. Maybe we've been preaching to them over and over and over again. It doesn't seem like they're coming to Christ. It doesn't seem like they're getting it. Well, Paul would have been that kind of person that you would have said, listen, that guy is never coming to Christ. He's way too far gone. Why? Because of his life. Because of how he lived. Notice what Paul says. Paul says, for you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. How I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and I tried to destroy it. Have you ever thought about this with the Apostle Paul? A Pharisee of Pharisees. Hebrew of Hebrews, as he says in Philippians. He says here, I was more zealous for for the traditions of my own of my own." Uh, ancestors beyond anyone of my countrymen. I was at top of my class as a Pharisee. Do you realize Paul was alive when Jesus Christ was killed? Doesn't say in Scripture, but I would venture to say Paul was there that day as one of the zealous ones who were saying, crucify him crucify him. You say, how do you say that? How do you know that? I don't know that for sure. But I do know this, that in Acts chapter 7, the Apostle Paul was there. The beginning of the persecution of the church. The Apostle Paul was there in Acts chapter 7 under Stephen's preaching. Stephen being one of the first who went out to preach. Stephen had preached a very pointed message, one that drew out the realities of what was going on in the heart of the people in Jerusalem on that very day when it came to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, of course, is long off the scene. He's already risen. He's already gone to heaven. The disciples were, prior to Acts chapter 2, cowering in the corner trying to wonder and see what's going on, and then the day of Pentecost happens, and from that the church begins, and it begins to spread. And in Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaches. No one liked it. They were cut to the quick, it says in verse 54. They were gnashing their teeth at him. 
But Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently to heaven, saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears, and they rushed upon him with one impulse. I think Paul was in that group. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside the robes at the feet of a young man named who? Saul. Saul was there. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Uh, Isn't it great that the Lord answered Stephen's prayer at that very moment, a few chapters later when he saved Paul? Notice chapter 8, and Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Saul was there. He wanted it. This is what the Apostle Paul, now the saved man, is talking about in verse 13 of Galatians, for you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. That's who Paul was. I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure. In fact, I didn't just persecute the people. I tried to destroy them. First of all, Paul was a hater of the faith. He wasn't just opposed to it. He aggressively hated it to the point that he was even violent against it. His own words, not mine, he says, I tried to destroy it. I tried to destroy it. The word destroy means to ravage it, to to lay it waste, to lay it waste, to, to turn it into garbage thrown out. In fact, Paul's own testimony in Acts chapter 26 says this, I thought to myself, Acts 26, verse 9, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. I'm sure in the heart of Paul as he's writing that, he's thinking of Stephen right there in the pit. Stephen wasn't the only one. I cast my vote against the Christians. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Paul said, I hated them vehemently, so much so that I voted for them to die. I pursued them. I wanted them to blaspheme. And I even chased them around the country. Paul was a threat-breathing, murder-voting, saint-pursuing, church-hating, Christ-hating destroyer. That was the Apostle Paul. Why? Because he was a top-notch Pharisee. Verse 14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more zealous for my ancestral traditions. That's legalism. 
Paul says, you know what? I was a fanatic in the Jewish religion. In fact, my fanaticism outshined all of my colleagues. My zeal was better than all of the rest of their zeal. And the greater my zeal in Judaism, the greater my hatred grew for anything that opposed it. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. The gospel of Jesus was a gospel of grace. And a gospel of grace had no place in the legalistic system of Judaism. And Paul stood for a gospel of works. And that was completely opposite to the gospel of grace. Listen, no person in Christianity, not an apostle, not anybody else, was going to convince the apostle Paul You couldn't have had enough clever arguments to prove to the Apostle Paul of the true gospel. His pride ran too deep. He'd put too much, as he said to the Philippians, confidence in the flesh. He saw no need for salvation by grace through faith. That was just a crutch for the weak. And if you were weak and you needed that crutch and you wanted to stand on that crutch, then you needed that crutch kicked out from under you so that you would fall in the pit so we could throw the stones on top of you and you could be gone. That was the Apostle Paul. Beloved, that's what makes salvation impossible for any person. Confidence in the flesh. Confidence in ourselves. Confidence that we can do it in our status, in our upbringing, in our own morality. We don't need a Savior. So from all human perspectives, Paul was unsavable. But God has a plan when he saves. And part of that plan is to show his patience for us to others. Do you hear what I said? Part of God's plan in saving is to show his patience for us to others, so that they might see how patient he is being with them. In other words, if God can have mercy on a person like the Apostle Paul, surely God can have mercy on a person like me. Notice what Paul says about himself. Verse 15. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I didn't immediately consult with flesh and blood. You can stop there. Paul says, in essence, listen, salvation has nothing to do with that which comes from the human realm. Salvation has nothing to do with that which comes from anything born in the human realm. It is all accomplished by God. And right here in these two verses, Paul lists three truths concerning his conversion. And all of these are accomplishments of God. Paul says, first of all, God elected me. He says, but when he who had set me apart, that's election. That's election. Paul's saying, listen, I was separated for salvation by God before I was ever created or born. 
You notice that. When he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb. God chooses. God's the one who elects. God's the one who chooses whom he is going to save. This should not surprise us. The doctrine of God's divine choosing is all over the Scriptures. Let's listen to Jeremiah. Listen to how Jeremiah is called to his ministry. Jeremiah 1, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anahoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign, came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, till the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. He says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. God's divine election. That's what Paul is saying. The only reason that I'm saved, Paul says, is not because I chose God. It's because God chose me. Paul says, listen, God had to choose me because I hated God. I wanted nothing to do with Jesus Christ. I wanted no one to worship Jesus Christ. In fact, I wanted it destroyed. I was set apart before my birth, and what you see reflected in my life right now is that very reality. Paul says, God elected me. But secondly, he says, there's effectual calling. Effectual calling. Paul says, but when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace. Called me through his grace. That's the call of God upon the Apostle Paul's life. This is effectual calling. The moment, the very moment, the act of God drawing Paul to himself and then granting him faith, which comes by grace. What's Paul talking about specifically? Well, I don't know all the incidents in which God was using to draw Paul to himself in all of those kinds of ways, but he came to that very moment on the road to Damascus where he was then, by the grace of God, ready, and God opened his eyes as he shined a light onto Paul the moment he was confronted by Christ with the gospel. Why are you persecuting me, Jesus said. Not only does Paul see the source of his salvation in the good pleasure of God, but he declares that his call to salvation was all by the grace of God. By the way, just kind of as a side note here, no one is saved without being called by God. No one's saved without being called by God. This is all throughout the New Testament. Just, just, Walk with me for a little bit through a few passages. Go to Romans chapter 8. We know this, particularly in Romans, because the Apostle Paul recounts these very truths to the believers he's writing to. Verse 29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he predestined, he these he also called. 
This is the calling, the effectual calling that when God draws you to himself, there's no turning back. You cannot resist that. It's God calling you. Who are you to resist God? Notice over in chapter 9, speaking of his own countrymen, verse 23. Well, look at verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also, what? Called. Even called for glory. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 13 and 14, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Timothy chapter one. I mean, this is this is always on the Apostle Paul's heart as he's writing this reality of being called by God. First Timothy chapter one, verse twelve, I thank Jesus Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. And yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. He says, he's saying, listen, God was more than abundant in his calling me and saving me and putting me into service. Second Timothy chapter two, verse nine well, verse 8 and 9, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, talking to Paul writing to Timothy, or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purposes and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Again, you have the reality of the calling of Jesus Christ upon a life even before they were ever created. So there's election, Paul says. There's effectual calling. And the third truth concerning his conversion was that God regenerates. It is God who regenerates us. He has elected us, he's called us, and he regenerates all those whom he saves. Notice verse 16, he says, he was pleased to reveal his son in me. Pleased to reveal his son in me. We might say it this way. Paul is saying, my eyes were opened. My blind eyes were opened. The apostle Paul's eyes, spiritual eyes were opened to see Jesus for who he was. The one whom he hated, the one whom he tried to bring to ruin in the hearts of others was in fact the Son of God, was in fact God in the flesh. 
In other words, he saw Jesus for who he was. He saw Jesus as God, and that revelation not only saved him, but it completely changed him. Completely changed him. Sometimes we hear people say that they found God. I found God, oh, I, I, and my life was bad. I was going the wrong direction, and then I found God. No, you didn't. Reality is, if you're truly a saved person, you didn't find God at all. It was God who came and rescued you. That's what happened. God rescued you. You were lost, and God found you. Paul didn't find God. God found Paul. And God opened his eyes spiritually so that when he saw Jesus, he saw him for who he really was. And when Paul's eyes were opened, what did he do? What did he do? He preached Jesus. He preached Jesus. Notice, he revealed his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I might preach him among the Gentiles. I didn't immediately consult with flesh and blood about that. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles before who were apostles before me. I went to Arabia and I returned one more time to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to become more acquainted with Cephas, stayed with him two weeks. I didn't see anybody else. I saw Jesus's half-brother, James, and I'm writing this to you. It's, it's the truth. I'm not lying. And then I went to other regions in Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown by the sight of the churches of Judea and were, who were in Christ. They, they didn't even know who I was. I'd been out there preaching the gospel, preaching to people. People were hearing of Jesus Christ. I was testifying to what God had done in my life. I was just going out preaching Jesus. Listen, this is who I was. This is who I am now. And Jesus did it. I mean, he was, he was the quintessential reality of the, of the blind man in John chapter 9 who Jesus healed of his blind eye. Paul was saying, listen, I was blind, now I can see. And it was Jesus who made me see. That's what Paul was doing. He didn't need anybody else to tell him that. He said, none of the churches knew of me. They only kept hearing about me. Hey, that remember that guy who persecuted us? Well, now he's preaching the faith. You know, the faith he tried to destroy before, the ones when he'd chase us around and chase people we knew around and try to kill them and, and cause them to blaspheme and all those kind of things. Well, guess what happened to him? He's changed. He's not like that anymore. Now he's preaching what we believe. It's interesting. Once persecutor of the church has now become the one who's the persecuted. Here's Paul being persecuted by those whom he has preached to and others who would come in and say, oh, you just love yourself. Paul says, listen, if I loved myself, I would have gone around killing people because that's what I did. I loved myself to that much. Paul says, after my conversion, I didn't consult with anyone about Jesus. I didn't have to go up to Jerusalem and talk to the apostles and make sure that what happened to me was true. I went about in the country preaching Jesus as Savior. Because of the time that passed as I was doing all of that, the churches in Judea didn't know who I was. They didn't know who I really was. All they had heard, faint stories about a supposed conversion of this guy who used to persecute the church. In other words, Paul had garnered a reputation in Christian circles. His reputation was that while he was once a persecutor of the church, now he's a preacher 
something happened. In fact, Paul tells the Galatians specifically of that fact. He says, they kept hearing. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith, which he once tried to destroy. A change had taken place. Something radical had happened to Paul. It was so dramatic that it was undeniable. Paul couldn't manufacture this. Who could realistically argue that Paul was not a different man than before? Who could realistically make that argument? Nobody could. Nobody. But even more than that, notice what Paul says here. Paul says, others were so convinced of the power of God to save by the change they saw in my life. They were so convinced of the fact of the gospel of Jesus Christ that it's Jesus who saves and not me because nobody was more zealous than I was for the traditions. They're so convinced by the change they saw in me that they begin to what? Glorify God because of me. That's so different than the ones who were coming in saying, you need Jesus plus something else. They wanted the glory. Paul says, listen, I don't want the glory. You're glorifying God because of me. Ah, that's all I want. Listen, beloved, here's the point Paul's making. You want proof of the true gospel? You want proof that what I'm preaching is true? Then look no further than my life. You want proof here tonight that the gospel is true? Then look no further than the change in your life. What God has done. When the change of our lives is so real, when the change of our lives is so visible that others see it and can only acknowledge it, they can only say, what has happened to you? It proves that the gospel truly is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. God can change you. He can change me. Nothing else could explain the radical change in the Apostle Paul. And nothing else could explain the radical change in all of us. Nothing. Sometimes we think the gospel is words. Sometimes we get the idea that it's a children's story, a flannel graph. That's a sales pitch that needs to be said just right. I need to have just the right arguments so that it will intellectually convince someone else that they need it. What we forget is that the gospel is the power of God to transform the life of even the most hardened criminal. In other words, the gospel is not a formula for how people get saved. The true gospel is the power of God that actually brings about salvation in the life of a lost sinner. That's what the gospel is. It's not a message about getting right with God. It's the very presence of Jesus Christ imputing his righteousness to us so that we are right with God. That's the gospel. And then the gospel equips us to live right before God, both here and into eternity. Totally changes us. Totally transforms us. 
No wonder Paul could say the gospel is the power of God unto salvation in Romans chapter 1. It is the power of God for everyone who believes, and we must understand it that way or we miss the gospel. We have to understand it that way. The greatest proof of the true gospel to the Galatians was the Apostle Paul. It's that way with us as well. Greatest proof of the gospel is your changed life. I know we all love John Newton. John Newton pastored in the 1700s. But like the rest of us, he was a wretched sinner. After his own conversion, he wrote a whole lot of hymns. Probably his most famous, well-known hymn is Amazing Grace. But like many of us, the mercy of God intervened in John Newton's life, turned him from a rebel slave trader to a preacher of the gospel. It's interesting to hear how he describes his conversion. Here's how he describes it. He said, quote, I, though long a ringleader in blasphemy and wickedness, was spared, and though banished into the wilds of Africa, where I was the sport, yea, the pity of slaves, I was by a series of providences little less than miraculously recovered from the house of bondage and at length appointed to preach the faith I had long labored to destroy. When he died, he had this written on his headstone. He wouldn't let anything else be written on his headstone. He wanted this there. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Change life. True conversion is proof of the gospel. One author said it this way, the best argument for and against Christianity, I love this, the best argument for and against Christianity is always the same. It's the Christians. Think about that. The best argument for and against Christianity is always the same. Professing Christians. He's right. Why? Because a transformed life is a powerful proof that the gospel is true. But a hypocritical life always undermines the clarity of the gospel in the minds of other people. Professing Christians are the best argument for and against Christianity. You want proof of the power of the gospel? Just look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. Look at your own life. Look around you at the lives that others have changed, that, that Christ has changed. That's proof. It's proof of the genuineness of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful that you've changed us. Oh, each one of us has a history, even in our own minds, that we'd rather not recollect. 
about the heinousness of our life before you drew us to yourself and saved us. And while we may not have in the same way lived out our depravity like the Apostle Paul lived out his seeking out others to destroy, we certainly rejected you and wanted nothing to do with you. Yet it was by your grace, according to your mercy, according to the very kindness of your own heart in choosing us before we were ever a glimmer in the reality of humanity, you called us to yourself. And in time, you regenerated us and made us alive with Christ that we might believe in you. And we sit here today as trophies, not of ourselves, not of our own efforts, but trophies of your grace, the grace of the gospel, and how you have changed us. John Newton got it right, Lord. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. We thank you for that. We thank you for the testimony of the Apostle Paul. As we have heard, we will certainly hear more. Lord, help us to know the gospel, to live the gospel, and to speak the true gospel for your glory. Because it is the power of you unto salvation for all who would believe. Use us as instruments of your great grace and mercy. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.